Welcome back to Rounding the News, your weekly news update presented by Rounding the Earth. I'm your host, Liam Sturgis, and I look forward to sharing what I found to be the most relevant or interesting points of news from the past seven days. So let's jump right into it. So last week, I introduced you to a lawsuit filed against the governor of Massachusetts and a number of other government and health officials. John Baudouin is suing the state for their role in generating fraudulent data surrounding COVID-19 and their genetic vaccine products, misattributing deaths and misleading the public. Over the past week, John has published a series of explainers for the case under the title Baudouin v. Baker, a vaccine opera. I encourage listeners and readers to click through to part one, available on the Coquin de Chien Substack newsletter, where you can learn in more detail about the parties involved and why this lawsuit involving activities within the context of a state is taking place in federal court. Okay, beyond the con, grand jury petition. Early Thursday morning, Matthew Crawford, author of Rounding the Earth, shared a second legal action that American citizens can become actively involved in with just a couple clicks of your mouse. A grand jury petition is calling on Americans to sign in support of a suit filed on the grounds of criminal data fraud and willful misconduct. Filed in March 2022, by Dr. Henry Ely III, Senator Dennis Linthissom, and Senator Kim Thatcher. The suit names Dr. Robert Redfield, former director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Rochelle Walensky, the current director of the CDC, Alex Azar, former secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, Xavier Becerra, current HHS secretary, Brian Moyer, director of the National Center for Health Statistics, and 25 does, which I believe means they have yet to be identified. Beyond the Cons website contains a wealth of information about the case and the underlying allegations, including a robust FAQ section, two peer-reviewed scientific papers, a video presentation by Dr. Ely, and a timeline of the events leading up to the filing of the suit and what has happened since. The petition is open only to U.S. citizens, though the website does state that international donations to help fund the suit are accepted and appreciated. Now, this is a picture of the current CDC director, Wichelle Walensky, uh, that I thought was very apropos. Uh, it's it's not directly related to the incident at hand, but it sort of sums up the situation we've all been in, been in, we've all been in. To quote her, I'm going to pause there. I'm going to lose the script and I'm going to reflect on the recurring feeling I have of impending doom. Yes, very appropriate. Um, so as many in the rounding the earth community will be aware uh, CDC director Rochelle Walensky, who just so happens to be a defendant in the case we just talked about came out and admitted that they had botched the COVID-19 crisis. Still, something about the admission didn't feel quite right. And it seems folks on both sides of the COVID-19 discussion feel that way. This being a rather pro-narrative uh, think tank, as far as I understand. So, Dr. James Lyons-Weiler has articulated what many of us have been feeling over here on the skeptical side. The CDC 
has no intention of changing anything for the better. In fact, it appears that the real plan is to take all of the things that didn't work and do them even more and faster. <laughs> uh, as Dr. Jack uh, lays out in his August 29 Substack article, Walensky articulates three points. One, we need a consistent message. Two, we can't make mistakes. In public, that is. And three, we need to rely less on peer-reviewed evidence and more responsive in real time to crises using what we know, published or not. At first glance, some may even feel that these aren't all that unreasonable. <sighs> to be young and naive again. Read Dr. Lyons-Weiler's full breakdown of the CDC's planned overhaul by visiting his Popular Rationalism Substack. That's popularrationalism.substack.com. And head over to the featured article, Old Wine in New Bottles. Now, speaking of wine, allow me to take <laughs> a brief moment to thank our sponsor for today's show, Blood of Tyrants Wine, the spirit of 1776. Blood of Tyrants is a Merlot with a rich Garnet color with flavors of black cherries, black cherries, plums, and figs with a soft and smooth finish. With its crisp acidity and ripe fruit flavors, this wine is an easy match for any occasion. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of tyrants. Metaphorically, of course. Purchase a bottle using coupon code EARTH, as in rounding the earth, to, in the words of Matthew Crawford, get a few bucks knocked off your order. Five bucks specifically. Um, wonderful. And you can access that at bloodoftyrants.wine. Remember, coupon code EARTH. Now, I'm proud to announce that because of how awesome you guys are, whoops, I'm way zoomed in, um, we... Uh, were announced as Blood of Tyrants' number one affiliate for the month of August. Look at that. This is incredible. Top three affiliates for August, number one, Rounding the Earth podcast. That feels quite satisfying. And that means that you, the audience, went out and chose to support the show. And uh, look what you did. You, you helped us out here. And hopefully the wine is as good as I understand it to be. So leave your reviews in the comments down below and let's see if we can replicate this for the month of September. A toast to your good health, Earth Rounders. Now, let's get back to our show. So, one of Canada's most prominent advisory groups in the COVID-19 crisis is undergoing a roller coaster of changes. Depending on who you ask, it's either the end of the world, like this guy, or the first day of the rest of our lives, like me. <laughs> so let's read through some background information, a summary of what's happening now, and then finally we'll dive deeper into what this may signify in the big picture. So we are, of course, referring to the Ontario COVID-19 science advisory table this is a page here on the campfire wiki that i have put together i want to give a shout out to uh investigative uh writer ronnie lempert who runs canucklaw.ca and has put out a couple of books 
focused on the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. For those not in Canada, this group is is sort of thought of, without really understanding who they are or what they do, they're thought of as being sort of the premier uh, independent research group. Anyway, so this is the page that I put together that summarizes all that. There will be a link. Uh, in fact, uh, there will be links for everything included. It'll be after the show is done. The first link in the description is to the Substack post that I am using as my script for this. So stick around after the show. It'll be within mere minutes that that gets updated. I digress. So the official story is that the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table is uh, it, it's an ad hoc uh, pseudo secret society, scratch that independent group of scientists who came together in 2020 to commandeer, forgive me, to guide, not commandeer, to guide the public health response to the COVID 19 crisis in the province of Ontario. By my last count, there have been some 157 members who have come through in various capacities the science advisory table. That is a almost complete list each with a variety of areas of focus. Throughout the declared pandemic, the OST has produced various science briefs, which detail their preferred version of the science in an admittedly well-designed format. I don't mind it. But what's happening now? So, at a meeting uh, with Public Health Ontario on August 18th, it was announced that the Ontario Science Table and its working groups were going to be dissolved as of September 6th, 2022. The government of Ontario stated that the work conducted by the table would continue under a new mandate with terms of reference to be announced in early September, which, lo and behold, they were published yesterday, Thursday, September 1st. They also revealed that the new and improved group will have a totally new name, as you can see here. Ontario Public Health Emergencies Science Advisory Committee, or OFISAC for short. Now, I'm going to share now some, some real-world footage of a genuine person attempting to pronounce this new name. Huh. Uh, what? What does that say, Anaya? What? No! What? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's not the easiest name to pronounce. Hamming Distance, greetings from Canada. Thank you for reaching out to us from Germany. Um, I hope things are well there. Let us know how uh, this whole energy crisis is shaping up. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I hope there's more bright than dark. Um, so, back to this. It's a ridiculous name. What? What's unclear is how the old table and this new committee relate. You see, they even have replaced the word table with the word committee. Based on, or rather, judging by the letter that was posted to the Ontario Science Table's website on August 26th, they sure seem to think that they are all out of a job. Well, one job at least. What you need to understand about the members of the Ontario Science Table is that they all keep very busy. But I'll get back to that momentarily. Now, on the other hand, Public Health Ontario's website explicitly indicates it's a new version of the old group. To quote, 
The Ontario Public Health Emergencies Science Advisory Committee, formerly the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table, is a group of independent, multidisciplinary experts whose role is to enhance provincial capacity to respond to a spectrum of public health emergencies with the best available evidence. OFISAC provides independent scientific advice to PHO and, where appropriate, through PHO to Ministry of Health to inform the management of public health emergencies, including COVID-19. Now, to the general public, the main news here is that instead of focusing solely on COVID-19, which may or may not still be a primary concern, depending on which university you ask, (coughs) forgive me, this new group will assist with other public health emergencies as they arise. Happily, this does not appear to be restricted to infectious diseases outbreaks, which has thus far plagued the focus and attention of public health officials since 2020 while allowing even worse crises to skyrocket, such as the ongoing opioid crisis. Also, mental health and suicide. And virtually every other fatal health condition, including the definitely not caused by gene therapy deaths from unknown causes. Thank you, full fact. It is high time we return to a more holistic view on health, which includes far more than whether or not you've developed a cold or a flu after breathing in an enigmatic bioweapon attached to a coronavirus, if that's even what's happening. But to wrap, up the, to wrap up the news part of this story, the new terms of reference indicate that the co-chairs will carry over into the new group until the end of their term. Apart from that, it looks as though we'll be starting this new group with a clean slate, though I'm sure current members will certainly be applying to join the new group. It's nice having a hand on the wheel, so to speak. Now, why am I confident about this, you may ask? Well... I have previously written about the conflicts of interest that are abound in such a table. In fact, in this specific table where I highlighted a selection of members and their various conflicts of interest. Basically, the people who run the table are mostly people who occupy positions across government, academia, advisory bodies, and industry, which in practice looks to amount to a double dip or triple dip or quadruple dip. While the table claimed to be independent, it basically never was. It was essentially a pet project of the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, who hosted the group and also employed a significant percentage of its membership. Further, the table was funded by Public Health Ontario, which is the government. To tie that into a nice bow, the co-chairs of the table were Adelstein Brown, who is the dean of the Dalalana School of Public Health, and Brian Schwartz, vice president of Public Health Ontario. Come on, guys. Ah, So. Let's take a look at some of these members who I refer to as the rogues gallery. Here's a few highlights. Uh, These are folks who you should be familiar with, whether or not you're in Canada, because these folks are the epitome of the kind of person running uh, the COVID response around the world. 
both within local jurisdictions, national, and in the supranational non-governmental agencies such as Gavi. More on that in a later episode. So this is scientific director, former scientific director of the table, Peter Juni. Peter Juni, <laughs> as well as documented through the excellent work of Rebel News's Tamara Ugolini, Juni is very busy juggling his time between independently advising the government while receiving various forms of funding from AstraZeneca, Apili Therapeutics, and Eli Lilly, to name just a few. All of those, of course, are working on vaccines and therapeutics for COVID-19. Apparently, <laughs> Tamara made him nervous by asking questions. And so he ducked and ran to the United Kingdom, quitting the Ontario Science Table's leadership, but not the rest of the board. Only one week after Tamara's first report. Coincidence, I'm sure. Now, next on the list, David Fisman. David Fisman was a member of the table until he was caught accepting money from the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario while advising in their favor on the issue of school reopening. From this January 2021 CBC News article, Premier Doug Ford calls potential conflict of interest deeply concerning. Now, Fisman resigned from the table in August 2021, though the reason he gave was that the group was withholding grim COVID-19 projections for the upcoming fall due to political interference. The table denied those accusations, of course. But then, in April 2022, Fisman co-authored a study insisting that unvaccinated people posed a risk to vaccinated people when the two groups mixed. The study used a highly flawed model, not real-world data or even realistic real-world assumptions, that led to the contrived conclusion that unvaccinated people were causing vaccine failure in the vaccinated or something like that. It's really quite difficult to understand how Fisman and his colleagues could have published this paper with a straight face and a clean conscience. Nonetheless, the paper was met with overwhelming rebuke from the scientific community with responses, formal replies to the scientific paper coming from the likes of Dr. Richard Shabas, who was the former chief, uh, I believe, of the Ministry of Health for Ontario back in the 90s, Denny Rancourt, and York Shang, who I'm going to be talking to next week, including in this, in this series of responses, calls for retraction, which at this point has not occurred. Oh, did I mention that Dr. Fisman has received funding from Pfizer and AstraZeneca? I'm sure that that had no bearing on his hateful rhetoric against people who chose not to accept their pharmaceutical offerings. Not a hair. Not a hair of influence. Okay. Now, Vanita Dubey is a great example of someone holding positions across virtually every sector involved in the COVID-19 crisis, leading to a web of conflicts of interest. Moreover, she sits on the Behavioral Science Working Group, whose mandate is as follows. We'll just click up and go to that. Behavioral Science 
fun now? Ah, there we go. Okay, quoting, the Behavioral Science Working Group is a group of behavioral science experts and public health leaders who summarize behavioral science evidence in the context of COVID-19 and identify actionable guidance for Ontario's pandemic response. Behavioral science experts were selected based on their specific expertise in behavior change, spanning behavioral medicine, health, clinical, and social psychology behavioral economics, and implementation science. Public health leaders joining the group were invited based on their expertise in promoting health protective behaviors and vaccination. Indeed, Dubay's specialty is convincing kids and adults to do what she thinks is best for them. Her research background includes publications such as is conflict of interest a misnomer? Managing interest in immunization research and evaluations. Hmm. Kind of like she knows that people are now discovering where to find the conflict of interest disclosures on scientific papers. Perhaps getting ahead of something. It takes time to build trust. A survey, Ontario's school-based HPV immunization program, 10 years post-implementation. Characteristics of immunized and unimmunized students, including non-medical exemptions in Ontario, Canada, 2016-2017 school year. Addressing vaccine hesitancy. Clinical guidance for primary care physicians working with parents. And last but not least, well, certainly not last, but psychological interventions for reducing pain and distress during routine childhood immunizations, a systematic review. Now, of course, I'm all for reducing the pain in vaccinations. With all of that in mind, though, ask yourself how comfortable you feel with this. Oh, oh, geez. With this overwhelmingly, quite literally overwhelming. I was overwhelmed there for a moment. Quite overwhelmingly pro-vaccine behavioral scientist holding the following positions all at the same time. You ready? Here we go. Adjunct professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health, University of Toronto, with a specific focus on vaccines, vaccine hesitancy, HPV vaccines, so on and so forth. Associate Medical Officer of Health for Toronto Public Health. Member of the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations, or NACI. Member of the Ontario Immunization Advisory Committee. And, of course, independent member of the Behavioral Science Working Group of the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. So, I want to briefly address the NASI point. Because NASI, there are, there's more than one individual sitting on the Ontario Science Table that is a current or former member of NACI. For those who don't know, NACI is the regulatory body under Health Canada responsible for reviewing submissions for approval from Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and so on for their COVID-19 injections. Much like the FDA, NACI has thus far greenlit everything that's crossed their desk as it relates to COVID shots. Despite the clear and present dangers that we're becoming more and more aware of every single day. 
So in addition to Dubay, Beat Sander holds a seat at both tables and Ontario Science Table member Allison McGeer is a former member, oops, former member of NASI. Now, McGeer, for the record, let's see. Here we go. McGeer, for the record, is well-funded by Pfizer, Merck, Medicago, Moderna, Janssen, GlaxoSmithKline, and AstraZeneca, just for the record. So, my final thoughts on this. There, there's your peek as to who the Ontario COVID-19 science advisory table was, is, and may become. It's unclear what the intention behind this new version of the table slash committee may be. But let me say this. Anything is better than what we had. Perhaps this is a sign that the government of Ontario is finally understanding the depths to which their COVID-19 response, the advice that led to their actions, has been biased. Or they themselves maybe feel caught in the act and need to take public action to cover their tracks. At this time, that's all just speculation. However, an inside source or five or actually any of the comment sections under the news articles related to the Ontario Science Table tell me that those who participated in some of the more egregious actions taken by the table should seek a very good lawyer. Now, to round out today's show, I want to share with you a powerful video published a few days ago. Let me just pull this back up here. But basically, at the end of June 2022, I had the pleasure of flying out. How do I do this? Flying out to Toronto to participate in a a citizen's hearing, it's called, investigating Canada's institutional response to the COVID-19 crisis. The panel heard testimonies from more than 60 people of all walks of life, each affected in their own unique way by the public health measures, social derision, economic damages, and COVID-19 vaccine products. The most heartbreaking stories came from those who had suffered injuries directly resulting from the COVID-19 injections, including tragic losses of family members. It is their voice that needs to be amplified the loudest to ensure the world is aware that our work is not yet finished. A Citizen's Hearing has posted a trailer for upcoming video content. The entire thing was filmed. There's hours upon hours, three whole days worth of content, and they're slowly working their way through it. But this trailer here is a sign that they're getting ready to really go big. So we're going to watch that and be inspired as our way to, uh, to end the episode today. But before we do that, I'm just going to click on this here, put that at the end. Before we do that, I want to thank you for tuning in to this week's installment of Rounding the News. Please support the show by becoming a paid subscriber to the Rounding the Earth newsletter on Substack and by visiting our Sponsors and Partners page for a list of other ways to contribute while expanding our community reach. Not the least of which, folks, is to go to our Rumble channel and uh, on on the live video, if that's where you're watching this, you'll see a little chat box in the side. You can leave a rumble rant, which is a paid comment. Uh, and it's a it's the most direct, most fantastic way, apart from subscribing to the newsletter itself, to support the show. 
Um, you can find me at uh, www.liamsturgis.com or at the Liam Sturgis on Twitter. And I'm showing this because I've updated my website. I am a musician primarily, but my work is becoming more and more expansive. And I am now posting updates related to Rounding the Earth content here. Um, but you can also go and check out the other work I do there. So coming up before we watch the video, Matthew will be back on Monday with a one-on-one -on -one discussion with Vermont congressional candidate Liam Madden. And Matthew and I will both be sitting down with Dr. York Shang on Tuesday for our roundtable discussion about the current state of doctoring in the province of British Columbia. So I'm going to now stop sharing this. I'm going to open up the share, oops, uh, for the Rumble video here, and we will watch this together for the last few minutes. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much, and we will see you on Monday. I thought the vaccine initially was created to protect us from getting COVID. The Moderna injection is 100% safe. There's nothing to worry about. Since I have taken chemotherapy, I have had cancer before. And then, you know, like the oncologist, all he said was it's safe and effective. Safe and effective. Safe and effective. There was no long-term safety data available, which is in kind of contravention to the messaging that I had heard from everyone. I went from being functioning last year to being so dependent this year, I can't even work. The term vaccine injury, which I didn't even really know was a thing, to be honest. I didn't know what a vaccine injury was. But the school is making me take it. I got the vaccine due to my employment. As a condition of my employment. It wasn't for my health. I'd already had COVID. After receiving the vaccine, my son Connor was born. Still born. And to continue to play hockey, he had to receive a vaccine. On the morning of September 27th, Sean was found dead on the floor beside his bed. Mais aussi des gens qui sont farouchement opposés à la vaccination. Ils sont extrémistes. Qui croient pas dans la science, qui sont souvent misogynes, souvent racistes aussi. C'est. Est-ce qu'on est-ce qu'on tolère ces gens-là? Someone in the system actually informed me that she died due to blood clot. They gave me that tea. They don't know why he died. Thirty-nine years old is way too young. By the time I was discharged, they agreed to sign off on the COVID vaccination injury package for me. I had a second shot and experienced a TIA and strokes on July the 14th, the 16th, the 21st, August the 17th, the 24th. The attending physician diagnosed me as having an adverse reaction to Moderna. September the 10th, October the 9th, the 10th. Essentially, the vaccine caused my immune system to attack the central nervous system in my brain. I'm also blind in one eye.
I asked him if he was going to file an AEFI, and he said he was not going to. One told me not to come back to the hospital unless I had a catastrophic stroke. And when I reported those as illegally obligated to do public health, all of my uh, adverse event reports were rejected. She said, regardless of what the neurologist says, you will not be getting an exemption. And she said that the motor neurons in both legs were damaged. Uh, because it's nerve damage, there's no limit to the pain. Constant pain, numbness, and burning sensations throughout my body. And furthermore, AHS recommends that you get the booster. If you don't want to get vaccinated, that's your choice. But don't think you can get on a plane or a train besides vaccinated people and put them at risk. You're stupid you even got vaccinated to how can you possibly blame it on the vaccine? My functional neurological disorder is a result of my pre-existing hesitancy to getting the vaccine. It's in my head. I'm making this up. I did not give informed consent because I had no knowledge that all these adverse events were a possibility. My public health officer actually took my reports and reported me to the CPSO. I cry a lot. I've lost friendships, relationships with my family. And I'm struggling to figure out how I'm going to pay rent. The EI only covered me for so long, so I was forced onto social assistance, which doesn't even pay my rent. Um, so obviously if I can't pay my rent, I can't buy food. So I'm living off of whatever the food banks give you and it's moldy bread and rotten produce by the time it gets to your door. I'm currently suspended, not able to practice medicine any longer. And now when I go up to bed at night, I pull out this little sheet. <laughs> it says, you are Kelly Sue Oberly. You live at this address and this is your phone number. I belong to somebody, and I matter. Thank you.